So I'd like to uh, welcome Chris Ruggiero back to the stage as well. Give a round of applause. Thank you. And we'll go through your questions in no particular order, apart from Joe, because he's got to, uh, got to leave early. Okay, so I'm going for Joe's first. Okay, so... Is that feedback coming from your hand? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think we're coming that way a bit. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Come a bit forward as well. I think it's because there's a speaker behind me. Cool. <laughs> there you go. Right. I want to employ somebody but cannot get five days' worth of boilers. Okay. So you, you want to take somebody in but you don't think you've got their full capacity yet. Yeah. Okay. Does your spreadsheet say that you can still afford them if they were doing three or four days a week for you? Uh, yeah. Okay. In that case, hire them and then be forced to fill their diary. It's amazing what will happen when you have got that necessity to actually fill someone's diary. And also, I would say that you don't have to be worried about completely filling somebody to full capacity. We never really want to. If you think about Darren, when I was hired him and I wanted him to do five boilers a day, he only lasted six months in the end, purely because I was working him to death, really. So you work for five days, Yep. Yeah, but you know what? Well, you could, you could grow into it then, couldn't you? So you could have them on there, but you could also get them doing servicing work in the meantime. You could, you could fill their diary up eventually. It was surprising. I always used to have the same worries when I hired somebody that I wouldn't be able to always fill the time. Same with admin staff. Like, I didn't think there was a full week's worth of work there for admin when I started, but eventually by the time we'd scaled the business, there definitely was enough work then. But by actually creating that dynamic first and creating that room to grow into, you'll be surprised how quickly and how fast you actually do fill that diary then. So just hire. Chris, would you go anything? Uh, yeah, you're in that kind of infamous chicken and egg scenario, aren't you? Um, do I go out and generate all of the work um, and then employ somebody, or do I employ somebody and, and fill them up with work? So at the moment, who's doing the work that... Um, of the, the sales that you're making? Is it you? You and a subbie. Oh, great. So you're, you're, this month you've been off the tools anyway, pretty much, and you've been doing the sales. Yeah? Okay. Um, so that's good that you've kind of detached yourself from the delivery element of it because that's the first thing that you should do. You should be focused purely on revenue generation um, and all the activity associated to that, so leads, sales... Um, the, the other thing that Paul kind of touched on there is that you are going to have to recruit to build a company. Yeah, it, it's necessary to recruit to build a company. Timing is important. However, you, you introduce benchmarks and standards in, into the business quite, um, quite quickly. So as soon as something becomes... It, it, it converts from being a fear to very quickly becoming the standard, quickly. If you, employ a, if you employ somebody to deliver installations for you, I guarantee you that it'll be the standard very quickly that you just fill their, their schedule, yeah? It will, because you'll find a way of doing it. You'll find a way of making sure that they've got enough work because you know that you need to. Um, it's kind of a good way of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, but then creating that new standard. That can be applied to lots and lots of different things. Um, and I think it's you know, necessary to take that leap of faith sometimes.
in yourself and, and the business. You will do it, absolutely, it can be done. Um, you just have to kind of put the pressure on yourself to make it happen. Yeah, next question? Yeah? Cool. Fantastic, cool. Right, Darren. So, uh, is, is it worth it, uh, worth it to find out about government schemes for elderly or vulnerable customers? If so, and how? And then we've got a second question as well. Do you want to go into that um, the welfare type boiler scheme? Well, I've had a couple of posts, and they've asked me about it. Yeah. All the government grants. The responsibility is whether to go and sort it out for yourself and then come back to them. Yeah. Then you have to write blame, you know. Mm -hmm. um, or, or to actually have that ready. Mm -hmm. So, um, does anyone know about it? I, I never got involved in that scheme. I think it's deflection from yeah. what you can do well is, is the honest answer. And it's not the, they're typically not the type of customers that you, you want to necessarily work with anyway because it's different motivations of, um, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, we're, we're operating it like a commercial business that's in it for profit, aren't we? And we don't, you know, so we want to angle what we're doing from a marketing perspective and lead generation perspective, et cetera, et cetera. To, towards the stuff that's going to make us the money. And I just think, like, attention. If, if you can avoid working um, with um, kind of government bodies as much as possible, you always should, because they've got a great way of messing stuff up <laughs> and taking ages to follow through. And, um, you know, the, what was the scheme called when, um, after COVID, after they... Oh, the, um, the renewables. Oh, no, no the renewables. The, 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 wow, what was the scheme called? The voucher. Free no, not the free. That was a for renewables technology, so air source, solar. They were giving everybody, you know, everybody, private homeowners included, which is usually not who they're trying to support, but private homeowners, a £5,000 voucher to have renewable technology installed into it. Was it, but it, no, it was, it was like the... It was the green... I can't remember. Anyway, I mean, that shows how successful it was. They made an absolute <laughs> mess it. of it. Yeah. And I, I'm not even kidding. I, I worked with a couple of companies around that time, and it nearly sunk the companies how bad it was in terms of just the red tape involved, the, the, the procedures that you had to go through, the amount of time that you had to wait for the cash. It's never worth it. So I only work with, and I recommend, that you only work with people that are ready to pay for what it is that you are delivering. And don't deflect your attention of trying to set up all these schemes and stuff to, to, to help and support the customer being able to fund it. Let them sort that bit out, yeah? Um, and work with people that, that are going to spend the money, yeah? Is my advice. And I, like, again, in my experience, I've never, never depended on uh, grants or funding or any of that type of stuff to make, make my business work. I want to make it work first and foremost, just commercially, because you're providing a... Uh, an in-demand service to a marketplace that wants it. Yeah? And second question was, could employing an engineer in order to concentrate on sales be a viable option if the business model isn't at that point yet? It kind of draws a little bit on what um, uh, you know, Joe was saying as well about growing into the role. So at some point, if you're going to grow the business, you know that you're going to need to step away from the front line and just be a salesperson. So it's almost at what point do you want to rip that plaster off? but you know you're gonna to have to do it at some point, but you'll be surprised at what point that you then concentrate on sales. By default, you'll be then getting better at sales, which will mean that you'll be converting more jobs and have more jobs to feed that engine in. 
So was your, was your question um, around... It was, could employing an engineer in order to concentrate on sales, so just oh, getting one in to concentrate I, on I sales. misinterpreted that. I thought yeah. you meant employing an engineer for them to concentrate on sales. No, so you, you can step a, away. A no. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So you're not making a profit? Yeah. Okay. But with that business model, what you've got to say is that when you're concentrating fully on sales and now you've got the capacity for somebody to do, say, 15 installs, what's the profit then? So that's what I'll be looking at. And then you've got to grow into that profit. Yeah, you do. It's called squeaky bum time and you have to hit the targets that you set for yourself. <laughs> I like to use, um, he won't mind me saying it, uh, and he was here yesterday, uh, Dylan Walsh is a really good example of this. He um, obviously joined the academy and then, you know, uh, run his business in a, a, a very intense way and did all of the selling and all of the delivery himself up to about 15, between 15 and 20 units a month, yeah. which is, in my opinion, ridiculous. He was obviously... Um, making a lot of money on the bottom line because he was doing all of the work. But that's the whole point of uh, building a business is that we can make money on other people doing the work, as mm. we were discussing at lunch. Um, so my preference is that I make less money but using 100% of everybody else's efforts than make more money of 100% of my own efforts. Does that make sense? So what, I'm, what I mean is... It's better to take an immediate profit hit by employing somebody and free up your own time than it is make more money right now but work harder. So I'd like to think that that directly answers your question in the sense that you're building a company. Profitability is not the most immediate thing that we're, we're paying attention to. It's the thing that we're working towards. So we want, a, we want a, a, an infrastructure that's going to produce us money, uh, income, a return on a recurring basis um, every month. Yeah? So we're creating a system that does that. You, if you're in the business all of the time, doing all of the work, doing the sales, doing the delivery, it's a difficult place to get out of that vortex. And your, your earning is capped because it's just your efforts. You need to take a little bit of a back step from a profit perspective so that you can make more longer term. So it is about freeing up your time. Um, that is important. Timing is, is important in it. I would, you know, I would say, again, it's a, a kind of also what, what the same, similar question to what Joe was asking. But um, you know, t timing is important. So being prepared at the point in time in which you think that you are ready to kind of hit the revenue generation activity hard and make a real success out of it. And then, you know, that creates that perpetual cycle of you've got that system of sales coming through, you've got an engineer filled up, and then you can really kick on from there. But that's, in this type of business model, it's the founda foundational piece. It's getting the delivery away from you as quickly as you can so that you can just, you can push the company on from a revenue perspective. So it, it is always a risk, yeah? Um, it's a calculated risk of mm. employing people. Definitely focuses the mind, though, when you take that leap. It does. No. But then, like I said, like your neighbour said earlier, he's now feeling fantastic going out selling jobs. So this is like the next step on it. Selling jobs and somebody else goes and fits it. Were you nervous when you first took that 
job role on and took an engineer on and just went out selling. There we go, so you, you were there. But you, so you're already confident enough that you were going to just have to go out and fill that diary. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Trust me, that is a good smiley feeling when you get to that stage as well. <laughs> There's a book that Joe and I um, uh, talk about a lot, and the, the title of it is exactly what we're talking about here. The, the title is um, Ready, Fire, Aim. Mm. So it's the concept that you're never... You're never 100% ready. Yeah, take the action and figure it out later. Sometimes it's kind of some, sometimes necessary. Mm. So, you know, it's the same concept as you can't wait to start your journey, uh, or you can't wait for all of the traffic lights to turn green before you start your journey. Otherwise, you never get you never set off. Mm. I think just leading on from this one, the next question is there, David. Um, when would it be suitable for to hire external surveyors? So then that is the next step up, isn't it, really? Who's selling now? Is it just yourself yeah, doing the sales? I normally say when you're nearly reaching capacity, so when you're doing consistently three sales appointments a day as a minimum, and you'll already start to tell if the business is starting to slide slightly. That's when it's a little bit too late to be hiring. What you need to eventually do is then get a sales guy in so you can retire into the office, and then you'll be just managing and spinning plates, one with your engineers, one with your surveyors. So it comes down to capacity, once again. Or, if you want to go quicker, just get them in now. Take the leap of faith, start training them up with you for a month, and then just let them out and, and go and get some sales, and then retire back to the office. Because then you'll be more engaged then to actually reach that next level of growth. Yeah. That's fine, but what sort of conversion rates are you hitting currently? One in four. Okay, well, that's fine. Um, that's what you'd probably get from a salesperson. I'd at least start the recruitment process now. If you've got capacity engineers-wise, you've got basically got wasted capacity. So I'll be looking to turn lead gen on and then hire in the surveyor pretty immediately. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good then. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how many surveys are you doing currently a day, roughly? Oh, okay. Of oh, course, cool. so you turned the lead gen off, didn't you? You said because you had that NHS job or something, didn't you? So, okay, we'll get the lead gen on. See if you can. Okay. Right. We'll see if you can fill your diary up for three surveys a day. That'd be my advice. Once you're at three a day, and you're spending all your time pretty much just concentrating on sales, then you also need to then be looking to recruit a new sales person. Yeah. Happy days. Well, like I said, I'd start the recruitment process now, to be fair. What's the worst that happen? You're going to meet a fantastic salesperson that you can hire, and then they're going to go out and do 30% conversion rate for you from the off. You've just said you've got loads of leads. Just do it. We had an example of that was when I said to Chris and Joe about actually selling the company, and they said, well, what's the next step? So I was like, well, I need somebody pretty much to be managing director. Um, I could actually hire from within that. That's where Lindsay moved into that role. I needed one more engineer and one more surveyor. I said, so about 12 months down the line, I think I'll be ready. And they just said, well, if you know that's exactly what you need, 
hire him now. Just do it. Then three months later, I'd sold the company. Or I was going to wait 12 months if I was going to grow into it organically. I just literally hired the people, got the systems running, increased the lead gen to then support it, and there we are, ready-made business. Anything you add on that one? No, I think, I think you've covered that. Happy days. I agree. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's a seal of approval, isn't it? <laughs> well done, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. That's me employed for another month. <laughs> cool. Right, Steve. Uh, do, do, do. People think uh, you know as engineers. Sorry, I'm not sure if... Peop oh, people that you know as engineers. Would you still interview them um, to set out your objectives? Yeah, definitely. You've got to, engineers-wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are they going to be PAYE or are they going to be subis? Subis. Yeah. I mean, it's not. A, it's still a formal procedure. You're still going to want them to sign a contract, subcontract to contract, to make sure that you've got all their details on file. You've got the public liability. They're aware of their payment terms. They're aware, aware of what will happen if there's callbacks to their jobs and you've got to send out one of your other guys. So all of that needs ironing over. But yeah, you need to make sure that their company vision as a subcontractor is going to align with yours as well. No, I still make it formal. Yeah, I'd say still bring them around. Yeah. Like I said, this is the problem where you try and rub friends with, with business sometimes. And it's, um, I'd still prefer to, I mean, I'd, I'll do it now. If I'm going to have a business conversation with someone who I've also got a friendship with, I'll actually make it formal at that point and say, look, do you mind if we just have a business conversation? And then it's almost switch the switch to pull the business person, and at the end we switch the switch back to pull the mate. Okay, but it's, it's a very different set of, um, set of criteria they're going to be dealing with because they are going out representing your company. And you don't want them thinking that they're just operating as your mate that's doing you a favour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely then. That's just answered your own question. <laughs> so, yeah, if he's going to hit your materials margin, there needs to be a very spe a specific materials list. I mean, just to do that on a smaller scale, what we used to do is Jess used to ring the engineer after the surveyor had been out, once it turned into a job, and then confirmed that the engineer was happy with the materials that were being ordered for that job. So then it's at least led by your company first. <laughs> If they're not, then that then goes back to the surveyor, but at least it doesn't get to job stage where they're then on site and ordering materials, whatever they want to do the job, and then you get a 70% material bill. No, I was talking about my experience. <laughs> I've had drastic ones like that, where you go 75% sometimes, and the bill was actually on materials. You go, where's the profit? You know, just because it drastically went over. But, you know, these are the type of things that you, they need to have set procedures in. What will happen when? I mean, Joe mentioned it earlier, you know, at first, his first subbies were, you know, ringing about gas runs and how they should do this and how they should do that, and now he's ironed out those stipulations and what happens when, you know, it's, it's, it's now running a lot smoother. So, yeah, definitely formally bring them in. Yeah, I believe Malvina's still got the old subcontractor ones from Impress, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we had a... Um, 
our subcontractor network was um, called, oh, I've just forgotten the name. Approved Installer Network. No, it was it? our Approved Installer Network. What did we call them? Installer, Impro Gas Installer Elite. That was yeah. it. Um, I mine's gone. Been a while, mate, 2019. <laughs> getting old now. Um, but we branded them up and uh, gave them their own emblem and everything. And um, we gave them, uh, had a proper pack for them, a set of um, uh, conditions, like a service agreement, we called it, not a contract or anything, a service agreement that was in place, um, agreed rates that we were going to pay them. Our rating structure was based upon uh, installation components as opposed to time. So it was, you get this amount for the boiler, this much for the flue, this much for each extension. We were quite granular with it. Um, and all of that exists. We have it. The asset's available. We can distribute it out. It's no issue. So um, you're more than welcome to that. We did, because around the time we were doing this, they were making so much noise around this IR35 stuff that we got scared into... Um, um, the reality is it was um, a fear thing. We got, we got scared into it, because it was all going on with Pimlico plumbers, that you know that, that their working status was getting called into question. Were they actually just employees, and was it a whole big tax dodge thing um, around that? And it was you know, deemed that it was, effectively. And then now this IR35 uh, thing was coming into play. And it was a big thing back then. And we got scared into not entering any agreements with subcontractors and not working with them on a full-time basis and all of that kind of stuff. So. We did kind of sideline that for a, for a portion of time, but I wouldn't probably recommend doing that now. I'd say, you know, there's a couple of things that make the difference between, um, in, not in my opinion, is like, it is quite open-ended terminology they use, but a couple of things is, do you have direct control of um, their full-time schedule? Are you their only client? Um, is there a, a contract that is, exists between you and the, the, contra uh, the subcontractor that then kind of turns them from being a self-employed person to actually they are employed by your company. Um, so there's a couple of things that you have to navigate with that. But I would still recommend entering into a service agreement. I just think it adds that um, touch of credibility, touch of um, formality about the relationship. I think it's quite a good thing, good due diligence to do. Um, and, you know, it, it creates clarity around what actually it is that they um, are doing for your company and what the expectation is and everything. Just going back to Steve, was just the, the question, so I understand the question specifically. Is it, should you, because the way the... the, the it's because they're friends, basically. Is it friends? Yeah. Is it personal relationships? You're worried about working with somebody you have a personal relationship with? Yeah. So are they your friends? Not really, but I know that they're really good ends with experts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold back on that. I would. I would enter into a business relationship with them and get them to do the work because the delivery is, again, as you all know in the room, it's quite hard to find good engineers, isn't it? Mm. Um, so if you know, if yeah, if you if you can um, get access to good engineers that are going to deliver the, the products to you at a, a rate that's commercially works with the business, absolutely, um, uh, get them on board. But going, you know, going back, make sure the relationship. Is formal. Make sure that you know it's not a you know a mates thing. It's you're thinking like a big company, acting like a big company, working with them as a a professional organisation, and you shouldn't have any issues. You know, uh, uh, just the standard ones that anyone would come across. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
Lovely. Cheers. Right. Uh, Blaze, would you recommend writing a script for a sales pitch and would you recommend writing some scripts, um, yeah, basically for, for all these sort of pitches for sales, yeah? Not a, not a formal script that I'd want to be reading out like you did with the interviews. However, your sales brochure, it, it looks like a glossy brochure to the customer. That is your sales script. That's going to be your prompt. You're going to use that to make sure that you are objection handling at every single stage. This is why we say don't skip bits of the brochure, you know, because that was developed specifically by Joe over years and, and thousands and thousands of sales appointments that he sat, and then he had to adapt that brochure to then handle another objection as they kept coming up. So things like the, do you mind if I go and get another two or three quotes? That's why the price match guarantee came in. Well, yes, you can go and get some other quotes. However, if you secure the price today, put down a 10% deposit, I can guarantee that if it's like for like, send me the quote, I'll beat it by 100 pounds. That was due to that objection. You know, I need to think about it. That's fine, what would you like to think about? Well, actually, I'm not sure about the boiler. Let's go back to the comparison checklist. That's why the comparison checklist went in there. So that's as scripted as I'd actually take it. We were speaking to Connor on the last, um, last Academy Day in the Q&A, and he was saying that one of the things he was finding that he, he became too robotic in his sales pitch, and now he's becoming a little more subtle with it and actually just having a conversation, building rapport, putting at least a half an hour into concentrating on working that relationship with the customer, that it's now working a lot better. But he still keeps within the confines of that presentation from start to finish, that blueprint that we talked to you about. So, in answer to your question, would I make a script? No, because you've kind of already got one if you've got your brochure sorted. Have you got your brochure sorted? You do, fantastic. There you go. That's what we've got. And are you using them currently? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Do you stick to them all the time? Try to. Try to? Mm -hmm. Well, this is where it comes down to time spent with the customer as well. So anything short of an hour, and you, you're limiting your stuff, I'd say that if it's anything short of an hour with a customer, you're definitely not going through the booklet properly. Oh, good. Uh, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> cool. But yeah, that is your script. It's only just dressed up as a glossy, glossy brochure for the customer's point of view. Mm. Do, you, um, do you go through the vision statement at the start? That's normally the bit that everybody misses. <laughs> there you go. I don't know why people are always. Uh... I did, yeah. 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 That's it, mate. Skip bits. And, Do you um... know why that is? It's because, um, you know, forgive me for saying this, but you don't necessarily wholeheartedly believe in the vision. Um, it, it, you might be seeing it as more as a marketing tagline as opposed to actually what it is that your business is about because you shouldn't ever be scared in, in um, my opinion to communicate to somebody that you're trying to sell something to uh, your beliefs and why you do what it is that you do. You should be, you should be um, excited mm. to, to tell somebody about that. So why do you provide, you know, in your opinion, the best um, because they're not, buy they're not buying the boiler, are they? They're buying the company. No. 
if it's done in the correct manner, if you see Joe, I mean, he did it yesterday, if you see Joe trying to sell a boiler, right, you, you, I want to buy a boiler from Joe at the end, okay? But that's because it starts off with a vision. So the vision bit is at the start because it builds the passion from within you. Why am I doing this business? Uh, what, a brochure, I think. Can we go on here? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> On the spot. I'm not going to sell you an entire boiler. We'll be here for an hour and a half doing the sales pitch. No, that's fine. Okay. No, no, so we just sat down with the customer. Okay, so we're getting nice and settled. Okay, and when we are, I'll go, right, okay, well, obviously, I am Paul from Seven Figure Boiler Business. Okay. What I'd like to do, though, just before we start going through your boiler, I just want to tell you a little bit about our company and why we actually exist, why we're around. So now I've got to get used to this vision. Thanks for putting me on the spot. So look, about our company, so our vision is to actually, oh, come on, to do, to do right? Let me read it first, yeah? It's got nothing to do to with boiler installations. It's outstanding service that focuses on quality, honesty, value for money, and customer satisfaction. Yeah, so that's what you've got to go into. So you've got to, once you know that off patter, I'll be looking them in the eyes when I'm actually saying that to them, you know? Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. If it's boring, why is it in there? That's what they'll be thinking. But that's you dodging yourself. You're getting in the way. So let's start with why. Mm. That is such an important thing. So you can't, you know, you go into a sales pitch and like, uh, you know, we, we do the best. Power. Oh, I don't worry about it. That power. doesn't relate to a boiler, that one at the moment. <laughs> we do the best power flushes, and um, you know we, we have really shiny pipes, and mm. yeah. the best boiler. Like people don't care mm. about. That. They're not buying that. They're not buying. Um, there's this whole concept of telling isn't selling. Mm. Yeah, it's about the beliefs that, that you have as a company, and I think that's really important that that's aligned with your company vision. Mm. It's like we genuinely believe that this is the th these are the things. If we're going to do a job, we want to do it to, the, to the, our absolute best ability because we do genuinely believe in honesty and customer satisfaction, and we want to make sure that anything that we're doing is done in the right way. It just happens to be that we are installing boilers. Yeah, It's got nothing to do with it. We do things correctly here. Um, and that sets the standard for why your prices are going to be more expensive because you're mm. delivering quality and value. You know, If you're going to charge a premium for it, which... I expect all of you to be doing. It has to start with like the integrity of the company, the belief of it. And yes, it, we do do things the right way. You might find somebody that's prepared to not do things in the right way, not do a power flush, not mm. you know really consider and care about the installation when they're getting it done. You know, and if you want to pay less for that, be my guest. You can do, but we are going to do things the right way. So if you want a company that's going to do that, work with us. Yeah. So and and that's the concept that I think that you have to. It's a mindset thing. So I think it's the, the, you know, the... It's delivered with passion and excitement. That's why, even when you're on a discovery day, it gets to the point where, you know, we will, I'll, I'll explain my vision for doing the discovery days. Like, I want to work with tradesmen to help them build their businesses because I've seen how painful it is when you don't know what to do in business. I've been there, I've done that, and this is why I, I want, I'm passionate about helping other business owners. That's how it should be delivered. To, as to why you're passionate about providing the best value for service. Tony, did you have a point? Sorry, man. I was going to add to this and say that um, whenever you sort of like look at somebody trying to read through the script, imagine you were an actor and you went 
Yeah, yeah. 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 The one bit you don't really point to. You just tell them the vision as you open that first page. And I then think move on to another the another thing that um, might help, and this is something Mike Green always tells us, is that when you're having a when you're in any scenario, if you're trying to get some something to set into somebody, you always want to think of it in three ways, or, or approach it in three ways, or three steps. It's um, tell somebody what you're about to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. And the way that that is useful in a scenario is that if you're going into it as if you're just open the brochure and then you're going straight into reading out the company vision um, to them, that is a bit, there's no context to that, it's a bit weird, like why are you, what, like why is that there? But if, say again. Tell them what you're about to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. <laughs> Does that make sense? So what, what I mean by that is, <laughs> Um, I'm about to tell you what our company vision is. The reason I'm going to tell you what our company vision is because I want you to understand what it is that we believe. Tell them the company vision, and then, and then you 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 go into the tell them what you've just told them. So <laughs> the reason I've gone through that is just so you can see exactly who it is that we are as a business. So that might you know ease the blow of going straight into we believe in honesty, integrity, and do you see what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Straight in. <laughs> yeah, you've been burnt once and don't want to go through that again. I think it's. I think it's an extremely important bit to to set the tone for the brochure. I really, I do, do genuinely believe that. But it's because I'm comfortable with, you know, the vision that I'm putting in there is is. God's honest truth, what I believe as a company owner for this business. Mm. And, that, and it, has to, it has to come from a place of meaning. If it is just a marketing tagline, then it won't mean anything to you. And if it doesn't mean anything to you, it doesn't mean anything to the person you're trying to communicate it to. And it will have that negative effect, and you kind of set it up in reverse then. If you think, oh, God, I've just got to listen to Dribble for the next hour. So. To, to go back to this original question, though, would you recommend writing a, a script for, uh, for your sales pitch? Would you recommend writing some scripts? Uh, for sales pitch, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think we, we kind of, we, we've basically discussed this, but script, I'm not a huge fan of sales scripts, as Tony, you know, mentioned. It's a, a bit robotic, really, if you're, if you're just reading from lines. I think the important part is, I think you can start with the sales script, and it's important also to, to remember that the sales process doesn't start with the pitch yeah, it starts way before that, like, you know, f initial phone call and qualification, and each element of its own, uh, of the process might have its own script associated to it. But I think it's important not to have a script. You can start with a script, but then condense it down into structure of conversation. And as Paul said, that's the whole point in the brochure, is to guide you through what it is that you're talking about. But it should be natural, it should be organic. Um, you, there's a few really important bits um, depending on what part of the sales process you're in, i.e. the first five seconds of being on the, on the call, you do actually want that to be quite repetitive in, in the sense that this is the first line that we always open with, because that's like the hook. That's when you can get the person's attention initially, and you, wanna, you don't want to um, off-piste that line too much. That wants to be, this is how I'm getting your attention immediately over the phone. Now I've got your attention. Now we can go into the qualification. And there's also... You know, elements to the qualification that should 
that, that are the basics that should always be met, i.e., um, follow a, a qualification script and criteria to make sure that this person is not only in a position to buy your product by the time that you get to them, but you've warmed them up prior to even getting to the, the, um, the, the home to, to then pitch them. Yeah, qualification is really important. You know, and, and, have, and providing that consultative approach of listening before you tell. Yeah, you might go in and try and sell somebody a, um, you know, we, we got this all the time. We would go in and the salesperson would try and uh, sell, you know, a, a conversion, a combi. That's, you know, that's the, this is a new technology. This is the thing that you should buy to an older generation. And they've been told previously that it might be quite dangerous to convert to a pressurized system. And they absolutely don't want that. So they haven't listened before they're trying to sell something. So all of this is important and all of this should feed into the structure of your sales process. But I wouldn't have a script ever to, to, to read from. Yeah. Definitely not. What you should have for that is you should have a format. Okay, so you need to have these, if I want to write this down. So the format for objection handling is you ask for the business. You then, so once you say, so would you like to go ahead? Never expect a yes. Never expect a yes. Always expect a no to be the first one. How many people get a yes on the first time around? Doesn't happen. That's only bullshit. <laughs> okay, right. So, yeah. Resident sales. Never expect that. Once you've got the objection, then, sorry, once you've got the no, ask for the actual reason why there is an objection. Then you want to isolate that objection, drill down a little bit, and exactly, find out exactly what it is that you want them to, they've, they've got a problem with. Then handle it to go back to the relevant page in the brochure answer their concerns, and then re-ask for the close again. And you want to be doing that at least three to five times before you turn around and sod off. Okay, because that's what you're getting paid for as salespeople. You need to be able to do that consistently time and time again. So that is kind of your script. It's not a script, because somebody else's objection and the way you communicate, somebody saying, I want to speak to my partner, will be different for you, for you, for you, for you, for you. So you wouldn't want, well actually, if somebody says, I need to speak to my partner, I say, because it would just sound awful. But what you want to do is go, okay, that's fine. I completely understand. Why is it? What is it that you need to speak to them about? Just to make sure that I've got then the relevant information I can give you so you can speak to them. You're then going to get that objection and you isolate it. So you say, so other than that, is there anything else that you want to speak to them about? No. So then it means that they can, can't then just throw out another objection in five minutes time down the road when you go for that close again. Okay? Make sense? Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because they come from Boiler Guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's fine. It depends on if you've already dealt with something like that similar in, in the um, procedure already. But if you do just get to that and say, well, look, I've been told I need to get three quotes and that's why I want to, you just say, okay, yeah, completely understand. And I'll be going straight back to the comparison chart. And I say, which element is it that you actually want to find out from other competitors. Um, I just want to take you back because we do research in the market at least every six weeks to see exactly where we fit in the market. Um, and what we've found in the last six weeks is that this is what you're going to get from your 
sole trader, this is really going to be big for the company, and this is what you're going to get from the value. And then if that still doesn't work, then I'll go down the price match guarantee route to say that's absolutely fine. Go and get your free quotes to completely understand. However, if you want to secure today's price, it is only a today price offer. So put down your 10%, get today's price completely locked in, and then if you go away, get your free quotes, you find another quote. I'm going to beat it by £100 anyway, if it's like for like. There you go. I'll work here as done. <laughs> no, but that's what it's there for. Never, never going to go and get it. Yeah, or if they do, you've got two benefits then, even if they do come back, because then you've got to get them to send in your competitor's quote, so you get another go to actually close. If you haven't got it locked in already, then they might just go with another company. If they've got to come back to you for a refund of that 10%, you now have another chance to close them again. You also get to see your competitor's quote. It's never going to be like for like, as long as you've got your USPs in there anyway. And then even if it is, and they really want to go with someone else, it's not a legally binding contract. You just give them the money back. But normally by that point, you've got so many, so far down the line, they're just your customer now anyway, so it doesn't really matter. They probably they'll probably cancel all the other surveys because they've already got locked in. Okay. Nice. Right. Okay. Uh, Dial. How do companies like Boxed make a profit and still go bust? <laughs> That's the first question. Cool. Chris? Business <laughs> um, models? Yeah, they don't, they don't. make a profit. <laughs> yeah. And they make huge losses, but it's a different, um, it's a different business model. So um, it's a different business model because it's, about, it's effectively about uh, valuation of the company as opposed to... Um, uh, profitability and okay valuation typically when we're talking about exit or um, you know us leaving the company is, is based upon profitability in the, uh, of the company but what these companies typically do is have loads and loads of investment and uh, a strategic plan to to work to an operational loss but eventually get to an operational profit which they'll never they'll never achieve for the most part but the point is that the share price along the way usually goes up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange phenomenon that, um, you know, there's this great TV series I think everyone should watch. It's, um, it's called We Crash. It's about the WeWork um, uh, shared office space company that's like a multi-billion pound or considered to be a multi-billion pound um, organization. But all it was was a shared working space set up in America. It was... Um, hemorrhaging something like a million dollars a day or something stupid like that uh, in losses, not um, you know, in, in expense, in, in losses. They were, they were losing a bit like a million dollars a day uh, and their uh, perceived shareholder price was climbing, climbing, climbing. And it's, it, you create these own bubbles where people are coming on at one price and then uh, ex exiting a higher price you can make money doing that. You can make money in, in velocity of uh, movement uh, of, of shares going up and down. Companies like Boxed, you know, have got have had huge investments into them. They're strategically and whatever there is that they're, they're uh, telling to their stakeholders, they've got a plan to work to profitability. But the reality is, they're going to. It's not sustainable. They will go bust. It's it's a matter of um, when, not if, in my opinion. Yeah. 
Don't yeah, so I think they're, yeah, they, they, it's not, I mean, it goes against the, you know, in every fiber of my body wants to make profit in business. That's what it's about, isn't it? It's about, you know, selling something for more money than what it costs you to deliver it at the end of the day. It's, that is, to me, what, what business is. So you should work to make a profit. But because of the availability of cash and investors and stuff like that, you get these weird little bubbles that, that create themselves. And you see it all the time. Like the, the, the stock market is a Ponzi scheme, is what it is. It's people, uh, and you know, it's Alfie, that's something that Alfie Best mm. um, that w was saying when we were in Marbella with him. It's that, you know, it's, it's all about the, it, it's unsustainable businesses trading shares that are eventually just going to be worth nothing. But it's, it's hot potatoes. Who's going to be left with it at the end of it? Is yeah. the problem. So investors, do they know this, this stuff now, or do they, are they just open to make money? I think I mean, what is uh, Worcester are big investors, aren't they? Mm. So for them, a, a lot of it is uh, market penetration. Mm. So it's, you know, they might be in, they might be investing into uh, a business that's losing money, but they're you know, they're, if they're going through a growth, um, uh, a period of growth of their own primary business, which is to get Worcesters, more mm. Worcesters into the, into the uh, country, so they've got they've got a different vested interest in the company. They don't necessarily it'll be it's a benefit if mm. that company succeeds, but that's not their primary focus. It's it's more of a marketing exercise. It's for cost them. per acquisition for them. It's, isn't it, it's really? a yeah a, a cost per acquisition exercise, just on a different scale than what we're used to. So. It's, you've got to look at you know, people's interest within something half the time to figure out what it is that they are trying to actually uh, achieve. And Boxed is just an, an, an annoying company structured in the complete wrong way. Yeah. That's, the next um, one, isn't it, though? I mean, there was yeah. Helplink, they were there doing exactly the same thing, weren't they? Yeah. Really? They shell, sold out their profit share. Glow yeah. Green have done the same. They're owned by Utility Warehouse. Um, for... Glow Green in Bournemouth, they're, they're owned by Utility Warehouse, and that's probably, once again, just using the boiler installation as a lost leader to get them through the door to then sell utilities to the database. There could be so many different reasons as to why they're using, you know, buying a, a, a business like that to actually then trade at a loss. Yeah. 